times that never were Lost ideas and tech we'll never know A strange familiar place Far and out of space Takes you back to where you long to go Into From WBUS Interplanetary Radio, this is Planet Tomorrow, where the future that never was is alive and well. I'm your star captain, Rye Dorsey. Star captain? So fancy schmancy. When did you become a star captain? I didn't know that. Well, anyway, I'm Zachary Goldberg. I'm, I'm, I'm just a podcast host, not a fancy schmancy star captain. What is this voice you're doing? <laughs> what have you done with Zachary? <laughs> Have you heard liter- have you ever heard me talk? <laughs> anyway, I'm Zachary Goldberg. Hello, Zachary. I'm Ry Dorsey. I, I know. And I know this because whether you like to admit it publicly or not, we're friends. And we're friends who like to talk about retrofuturism and the future as seen from the past. You know, we, we love talking about what people in different eras imagined the future would look like. And so now we're going to talk about it all the time. Now that, now that we're star captains. We have the legal license to never shut up about retrofuturism. <laughs> but on today's episode, we are going to be talking about Y2K. What is Y2K? Y2K can mean a few different things. There's the year 2000, you know, Y2K, 2000. It's pretty easy. There's also Y2K as the aesthetic, which is like that kind of like late 90s, early 2000s, just like look, just everything had, you know, the plastic, the bright colors, you know, all yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into it, yeah. Right, 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 right. And then there is probably where the Y2K got its namesake is the Y2K computer bug. Right, the idea that once the clock struck midnight on the year 2000, that all of the computers would go down, airplanes would fall out of the right. sky, everything would just go to shit. I th- I mean, we're not computer people, but I think the idea was that the way numbers show up in certain like coding systems is that like the year 2000 would look the same on a computer as the year 1900 or 1800. And so some people who probably also were not computer people got the idea that, (laughs) oh my God, that means the computers are going to get confused and our entire society is going to collapse. Of course, that didn't happen directly at the year 2000, but... Once again, I'm so glad we have a star captain around to keep (laughs) us informed. (laughs) Well, anyway, because of that whether you're talking about the aesthetic or the year or the bug the idea of the future is sort of inseparable from the idea of the new millennium of the year 2000 which makes it perfect to talk about on this show so we've got a whole lot of great stuff coming up later in the show we've got an interview with jack grimes who's a curator and researcher from the consumer aesthetics research institute And we also have some listener memories and a whole bunch more. Next stop, Planet Tomorrow. I just, I really wanted to ask you first, what are your memories 
of the years 1999 and 2000. Because we weren't that old. Yeah, we were not that old. But I don't know when this was, but I remember my first movie in the theater was Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius. Um, that's 2001. <laughs> this, is a, this is a 1999 and oh, 2000, 2000 only 2000 podcast. Only. I'm sorry. We went to the multiplex cinema near my house that's no longer around not even your shitty regal no no this was this was better than the regal because it was it was humongous it was like this giant giant building had like 13 screens or whatever and an arcade in it one day they got rid of it well we didn't deal with the frivolous the frivolity of an arcade (laughs) instead we used the space for 20 screens Uh. i remember it was 20 yeah. At the Movie Co. <laughs> Palace where I grew up. It was like the theme was a movie palace, but it wasn't like anything historic. You know, it was built in the 90s yeah. or whatever. So it wasn't like, you know, going to like Radio City or whatever. <laughs> it was like all made of like fiberglass and plastic. Yeah. Like um, really bad and cheap neon. I loved like, it so much. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Whenever I'm home, everyone's trying to get me to go to the, the Regal. They're all like, oh, but they have reclining seats now. I don't want the reclining seats. Scam, I want, I, scam. It's a scam. I want the movie palace. <laughs> you shouldn't be comfortable in a movie. No. <laughs> I, if I wanted that, I'd, if I wanted to be comfortable, I'd stay home. Right, exactly. Okay, so we were both born in 1996, Yeah. right? So we would have been three and a half, four years old or whatever. Right. Do you remember any talk of... The new millennium or of Y2K or like anything? I don't know. I don't really think so. Because again, I was like very young. I have some memories of that time, like sort of. But like, I don't think I knew what was going on in the world. Probably for the better. What about you? Yeah, I was clearly a smarter, more precocious (laughs) child. Because I do remember. Um, Before you roll your eyes at me bringing up a Disney thing. or Okay, actually, this is going to explain like everything you know about me. My very first trip to Disney World was in the year 2000. Okay, yeah. We moved to Florida in the year 2000. So that was a really formative year in my childhood. And I think my parents really wanted us to like Florida. And so they said, oh, okay, we'll bribe them with a a trip to Disney World. Naturally. Right. And Epcot was doing like a celebration for the new millennium where... They had some really tacky setups and some ugly pin trading tables. And uh, they basically just threw a bunch of ugly decorations around the park. But they also added the most wonderful fireworks show Disney's ever done. Illuminations 2000 (laughs) Reflections of Earth, later just called Illuminations Reflections of Earth. (laughs) And it was absolutely wonderful. And I was totally mesmerized. And I do distinctly remember my mom holding me. Like, while I was watching the fireworks and me asking over and over again, what's a new millennium? What's a millennium? And then, you know, oh, it's a big celebration. The first time, blah, 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 all that. So I always felt cool because I knew what, what the millennium was, what the new millennium was. I'm sure you're very it. annoying. I'm sure <laughs> I, I guarantee you I was. So was this celebration, was it, like, futuristic? I guess it was more... A celebration of humanity and where we're going than anything particularly futuristic, Mm -hmm. but it felt like the future because it was like, wow, like 
we have so much potential. Look where we could go. And then, you know, it all went to crap. But right. <laughs> the fireworks show was all of the countries around the lagoon lighting up and coming together for this celebration. And so it specifically felt like it was all about this idea of, wow, like we can have this incredible future, which I suppose is in big contrast to the general mood of the 2000 (laughs) future. Not a lot of optimism. (laughs) Yeah, well, clearly made an impact on me. So, (laughs) you know, that I mean, that really was, yeah, I think the thing that got me into Disney, got me into, in some ways, the future and being interested in that kind of stuff. I don't know, what was your dark future origin story? I don't know. I just remember a lot of (laughs) fisheye production wise yeah people people poking their heads in and out of a fisheye well it's funny because i was thinking about how i actually remember disliking the fisheye as a kid like i remember maybe like a little older like six or seven yeah i remember watching you know every commercial on at the time was in fisheye and i remember in my little head going like oh brother like you know i was the opposite i love that no (laughs) i was like they're trying to pander to me like highest form of comedy (laughs) just like sticking your head in and out of that fish eye (laughs) no i was like i don't need to see this like just shoot it normal (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not so you so as a kid you would have preferred like if the Lion King and Toy Story were shot on fisheye yeah, lenses. Yeah, or at least had one fisheye shot. Right. They should have for the kids. <laughs> I think that's the highest form of art, really. But it it only works if the accompanying sounds feel like fisheye sounds. Yeah. <laughs> like it has to. There has to be a boing and somebody going like, "Hey, like, whoa, or, that's crazy," or just a funny face. Missy Elliott loved that in every single music video, Missy Elliott music video. She just loves. I feel like every music video. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder why that is. Like, why yeah. that's the aesthetic. It's like of... fisheye and then, like, also giant glowing white room. Yes. Yeah. Or, like, mirrored room. That's, well, that's the adult version. Yeah. That's, that's the Missy Elliott music videos. Right. That's not, like, what was on. If it was on, like, Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or whatever then it was like really big colorful clunky like we just watched inspector gadget too right yeah (laughs) it's like the brightest colors the tackiest (laughs) oversized objects but if it's for adults then it's like although missy elliott have you seen the the one where she has like the gmail on her chest basically (laughs) it's it's a socket to him it's a fantastic music video she's like dressed like this like red robot thing and she's like running away from like these aliens and yeah it's, it's fantastic it's colorful right that's that's something that's really interesting to me too aliens <laughs> and space and future techno babble yeah infiltrated that aesthetic like it it's like inextricable from that look like it, it didn't even have to be a sci-fi commercial it could have been a commercial for like capri sun you know <laughs> And it ha- like if it had a fisheye lens, there was probably like a UFO yeah. or like an alien or everyone was just so X file crazy that you just had to have a cow floating away with a UFO or something. Were you watching the X Files at five years old? Probably not. 
I'd believe if you were, because that's the thing, is I feel like you're a lot cooler than me and, like, the things you had growing up. <laughs> Qu- like, Quote-unquote cool. <laughs> no, you like... <laughs> Watching X-Files. I was, like, you know, reenacting a Disney World fireworks show for my friends. <laughs> while you and were I was watching. smoking weed and watching <laughs> Missy right, Elliott exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I associate with this whole time period is just, like, an exorbitant like waste of plastic like everyone just loved plastic <laughs> just like anything just like make plastic craft it just needs to like we we were talking about um the hit clips oh yeah just the just the garbage <laughs> little like music thing just to waste plastic well mind you right okay so it's like a portable way to listen to music but this is way after like CD players right. or the Walkman were invented. It, it's not music like, in quotes because it's like you get like a minute loop. Well, it's a it, hit clip. It's just yeah. the hit. It, you just get the chorus. Yeah. Why? You know, skip skip these <laughs> the boring parts. <laughs> the most compressed possible music. Oh, one movie that I personally really associate with this era is the day after tomorrow. I know this is technically just outside your Y2K window, but it went... It's flexible. It means it was written in the Y2K era. And in fact, if I remember correctly, it's based on a book that came out in 1999. So very Y2K. Absolutely counts. Anyway, my brother saw The Day After Tomorrow in theaters. I I would have been nine or ten. And I remember him talking about it in a very, like... That was such an important movie <laughs> kind of way. And he came home and was like, oh, that was the scariest movie of all time. And like, that was so serious, bro. And like, so then I remember going to school and telling all my friends about how The Day After Tomorrow was the scariest movie of all time. So scary that we couldn't even handle it, which is why I didn't see it. <laughs> I was too young for it. And I, was, and I knew it. I was like, we're, we're too young for it. <laughs> and then I had like nightmares about it, even though I hadn't seen it. <laughs> But that's like the most like doomsday of that era thing yeah. that I think of. I can't believe we've gone this far and have not mentioned the Y2K phenomenon of the Hummer. Hummers! <laughs> How could we forget Hummers? <laughs> Literally, Hummers. <laughs> the day my second grade classmates <laughs> rolled up in their parents' Hummer. <laughs> just yellow, just giant hummers who who was like <laughs> this military uh vehicle should be a civilian it worked it worked they made so many of those things you saw them around all the time the two cars you could have the two car genders were hummer or like pt cruiser and there's nothing in between i feel like you would see a lot of hummer limousines and like the there was like a billion of these like win a win a shopping spree with <laughs> like the ultimate kid shopping spree at toys r us and it was like legally blonde pink yeah the, the, the hummer. <laughs> just obsessed with like a butler going like your limousines uh well right so the i mean i can direct this right now it, the the our pink <laughs> stretch hummer well, no, no, no. first it starts black and white the kids are like eating like slop <laughs> and then like bored oh, out of their mind yeah. and then a cartoon zebra come, busts through the door <laughs> slams down some like cereal or like 
extreme spaghettios <laughs> and then the, everything becomes light and like blown out and then they hear a, a knock on the door and they open it and then there's this like butler here for some reason and he's like your limousine sir and then there's the, well, and the he, fish and the... eye and then it f- pulls up into the fish <laughs> eye <laughs> yes and when it pulls up it then cuts to the neighbor mowing their lawn and they accidentally <laughs> like mow their cat or something because they're or like oh. the, the lumber the, the hummer limo runs over like a fire hydrant and just like starts racing back <laughs> and the kids look at each other and go cool yeah all right <laughs> no purchase necessary right yeah no, terms and conditions may apply <laughs> <laughs> It was the years of the consumers. It's like the most consumer year. I, I think that's too vague because you could make that argument again for the 50s. You could make it for the 80s. And I, like, I really want us to pin down what makes the 2000s the 2000s. Well, I mean, like the 50s consumerism is like this like false sense that like the stuff is good or like fancy or like, you know, but like Y2K kind of like just like encapsulates like just the disgusting cheapness of it all you know like just like (laughs) shiny leather like it doesn't look good like you're not trying to make it look good you're just like i don't know it looks fake i think it's funny that we're codifying it now as like its own aesthetic because i i think i always thought of the 2000s as not having really its own aesthetic and it was like it wanted to be the 90s (laughs) yeah but it, it but it like wasn't defined enough to be itself but i guess looking back it kind of is its own aesthetic i don't know there's like 90s i see and then there's like y2k which is like the hangover of the 90s yes the 90s but where computers are more of a staple in society yeah there's still like a some sort of analog charm to the 90s aesthetic like computers are there but it's not as big but i feel like i start seeing the matrix numbers when i think of y2k (laughs) it's like the digital age jack grimes is a curator and researcher at the consumer aesthetics research institute also known as carrie carrie is an organization that does amazing work putting names and descriptions to so many aesthetics that would otherwise be forgotten so let's go to Jack now to hear more about what Carrie does, the Y2K aesthetic and its lasting influence, and much more. Jack, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. I have a really important question. When you were a kid, what did you think the future was going to be like? What was that one thing that you're like convinced was going to be the future? Um, I think definitely like very bright. Like every a lot of the depictions of the future from then, and and I'm sure we'll tuck into this in more detail. But like everything was just very smooth and bright. Something that I definitely noticed a lot of, and actually continue to notice a lot of, is this like kind of eco solar punk type vision of the future, where like all the buildings are white and look like they're 3D printed and there are trees on top of them and everyone rides, you know, maglev trains. And even as that vision has receded, I think that was the dominant futurist aesthetic of the, you know, period when I was growing up and, and trying to get a bearing on what you know what the landscape might look like in some optimistic projection so is this like a vision of the future you have that's influenced by specific media and is it media of the 2000s or does it exist in a void as a combination of a whole bunch of other influences 
I'm thinking immediately of the movie Meet the Robinsons, I think was a big factor. Yes, yes. Like the scene where they are putting in a new building and they just kind of lay down this big mat and then the building is constructed, you know, on its own without people working on it. I thought, well, that seems, you know, that seems like I bet, you know, people must be working on that. And maybe people are. I don't follow the... uh I don't, I don't follow the construction trades, but that's something that like definitely became a little pearl of this futurist vision. I kind of want to take a step back and maybe just like define what Y2K is. Yeah, well, so Y2K is the, is the name for it that's caught on, but like really it's a span that I would say describes a period between kind of the early to mid 90s right up until probably about 2001. I think Y2K is defined by speed, efficiency, but also style that relates to kind of a meshing between human lifestyles and technological advancement that is, you know, speeding up rapidly, right? The the internet was brand new. A lot of the visual cues that we associate with Y2K kind of grew out of new manufacturing processes that were being developed and and becoming increasingly cheaper. A term that you hear a lot in relation to Y2K is blobjects, kind of the idea of electronics and other products that are organic in shape, right? Like a cassette player that is kind of shaped like a big jelly bean. You know, if you think about like the the kind of swooping transparent shape of the iMac CRT, that's kind of part of that category. You're sending me right now. I'm like... (laughs) I'm in a trans. <laughs> because these were things that had just been kind of figured out how to manufacture. But then the another influence on the Y2K aesthetic is that the sort of 1970s period of ultra-modernism was once again becoming chic as part of the kind of always turning nostalgia cycle, right? If you think about something very representative of Y2K, like for example, the game Space Channel 5, right? Yeah. People look at that and they go, this is Y2K to me, right? It's very stylish. There's, it's very flat. There's very kind of poppy colors and, and the shapes all feel very organic. But there's a lot of influence within something like that from the 1970s, you know, this period of ultra-modernism. Frequently, these visual cues and things are incubated. They're developed very high up in kind of the socioeconomic pyramid, right? Things start out as new movements that are being developed by designers and and artists who have a lot of resources and time to play around with new things. And then stuff sort of, you know, in in a sense, uh, consumer aesthetics really start to kind of trickle down until they eventually achieve widespread vernacular use, at which point the people at the beginning of that cycle consider them cliche and done before and then are start to develop a new thing. And, And that's a cycle that we've seen you know, play out over over different time scales, but almost always in that same direction, you know, dozens and dozens of times. I am curious because you said that Y2K, you think, goes through 2001. I've seen different numbers in different places. I've seen 2003, I've seen 2004. So how do you define when it stops and how did you land on that year? And I also, for clarification, wanted to ask, is Y2K... Is it an umbrella term for any aesthetic around those years? Or is it specifically as it relates to the future? Well, I'd I'd like to get to both of those questions in order. So I think the best way to do that is to start by kind of explaining the mission of Carrie and what what we do, right? So the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute kind of began as an expansion of the mission of the Y2K Aesthetic Institute, which a lot of people may be familiar with from Twitter. 
or Tumblr or the long-running Facebook group, which is run by Froyo Tam and uh, Evan Collins, who kind of co-founded Carrie a few years back as a kind of Tumblr and, and Facebook community. I became a member of Carrie in late 2018. So by this point, it had already become a wider research effort that covered multiple decades. So the purpose of Carrie really is to conduct meaningful categorization and critique of graphic design trends kind of from the end of what you would consider the mid-century period, right? Really from kind of the late 1960s through the present day. And the reason that we've settled on this as our time range has two major reasons, right? One is even as the effort grows and more and more people join the team, you know, we have probably between a dozen and 20 people who are kind of the core research team, and we have about 1,500 people in the Discord, Wow! most of which are are active. A lot of folks just pop in to see what it is and then never post again, <laughs> which that's also fine. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't condemn people for sightseeing. <laughs> but the, the other reason is that the speed at which aesthetic trends have propagated in the sort of what I guess art critics would call the postmodern period, right, has accelerated faster and faster because of two factors. One of those is the widespread democratization of design tools, right? The rise of the personal computer and desktop publishing, the expansion of branding as a thing that people have to interact with more and more, creating a need for more and more material related to branding. And then also the wheel of nostalgia starting to accelerate faster and faster because the rise of online spaces and then the co-option of those online spaces by capitalism means that the people who were defining what is cutting edge and, and what is current are getting younger and younger. And so whereas around 2000, you were seeing people with a lot of visual nostalgia for the 70s or, or even the late 60s, because that's a period that was either early childhood for them or was sort of romantically just out of reach for them, the way that I think a lot of young people today would think about maybe the 80s. Today, we're seeing nostalgic revivals of Y2K, aesthetics of kind of the late 90s and the 2000s, because members of Generation Z are starting to become more and more in control of the visual zeitgeist, and the things that they have nostalgia for are so much more recent than the things that previous generations who did not achieve, you know, art director jobs until they were in their 30s and 40s, you know, had to wait around to to bring the the nostalgia wheel around. Huh. So Carrie is the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute, and I'm going to say the word aesthetic a lot. And so I'd like to fence off exactly what it means, right? Because I think, and this is actually on the website, the FAQ page, the second item on there is asking, what is a consumer aesthetic? Because I think the word aesthetic in online spaces has taken on a very different definition than the somewhat academic definition that we use at Cary. There's a website that I actually love very much called the Aesthetics Wiki, which I think is largely run and edited by like teens and kids. I find it very fascinating, right? And I think that they are doing meaningful work, but at its core, you know, this team of people is cataloging different things than we do at Cary, right? The qualifier consumer aesthetic means that what we research and, and what we define as a category refers specifically to a visual trend that stuck around long enough and became popular enough to be co-opted by, you know, consumerist culture. And that's a bar that's constantly lowering, <laughs> and, and that's something that we've seen over the last five, ten years. 
you know, now that the Twitter celebrity du jour gets to be on like a <laughs> Pizza Hut commercial in two weeks or whatever, like the gears are speeding up in a way that I think you could fairly see as maybe alarming. But I hate to generalize about a website's users, but people who use the word aesthetic in kind of the Tumblr sense to say, I dress like an English professor, and that is my aesthetic. <laughs> right, right? Like, a look you like. Yeah, like, I'm really into goblin core and, and, and things like that, right? <laughs> Everything just gets core after it, if it exists. <laughs> right, yeah. We really try not to use core because it, it means different things to people who are familiar with different communities, right? Like, I think the term aesthetic in many online spaces kind of refers more to a fashion trend or a lifestyle. Whereas at Carrie, we use the word aesthetic to mean a common thread between visual artifacts that are also supported by a unified cultural attitude. So to finally get to your <laughs> second question about what specifically qualifies Y2K, a term that we associate very closely with Y2K is techno-optimism. This idea that the internet was brand new, it had not yet been converted into a vast machine for boiling teenagers' brains. <laughs> the driving cultural attitude behind the Y2K aesthetic is that technology is here to liberate us, right? The, the idea that the prevalent vision of the future was a vision of a future where human labor had been made obsolete, that we were striving toward this futuristic city where people were free to listen to house music all day on their jelly bean shaped Walkmans. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. But a lot of the Y2K stuff never felt that sincere to me. Like it felt like there was some like leftover 90s cynicism like wrapped up in it all, you know, am I reading that wrong or is that part of the aesthetic too? I, I think that's definitely part of it in sort of later expressions, right? In, in later and, and more American expressions. And we see this in concurrent trends as well in, in things that prevailed through the 90s, like the kind of mission school aesthetic or what we call global village coffee house, the sort of like chunky petroglyph. I, I was just talking about that one yesterday to Rye, because that was definitely one of the ones that when I saw a post from all of you, I was like, Oh my god, that's like th that's what mm -hmm. it's called. That's the name in <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Can you walk us through how you establish these categories and these names? We've renamed things frequently. I'm personally an advocate for making the names short and easy to remember because a lot as many of the category names when I joined were very long and had, you know, references to a bunch of different things in them, right? Now that we have a public website, it can't have a brand name in it. The sort of like zany checkerboard Nickelodeon aesthetic used to be known as Wonka Pomo. And then we were like, mm, let's do wacky Pomo. Let's just play it safe in that category. The The other thing is that like we try to not have the name of a decade in the name of the aesthetic, mm. especially within the Discord, right? Because the channels in the Discord are organized by decade and they're kind of organized by the decade of the earliest example that we can find. But that framework is constantly shifting, right? Because part of doing documentary work of graphic design from the pre-digital era into the all-digital era is that there was a very turbulent period of media formats and whether things made it online, whether things were preserved in an accessible format where 
there's huge banks of stuff that are just considered lost media. And and I want to give a specific shout out to Evan Collins, who is constantly finding these crazy books on eBay, like Storefront Design Review 1994, and scanning them <laughs> and, and finding all kinds of stuff that helps us fill in the gaps in the story of how these aesthetics developed that like otherwise maybe nobody has ever looked at or thought about since these books were published. You know, there's a huge wealth of stuff that exists only in print and and part of our mission at carry is to kind of make that stuff as a bank for doing aesthetic research and and doing visual stuff and and for designers today to reference it to make that more accessible through putting it online you know making sure that the stuff is credited properly and making sure that stuff is accessible to people who just are curious about maybe trying to find something that they remember from the 90s that nobody else seems to know about or just looking at stuff for for visual inspiration for their own work. So you're a designer yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so say you were commissioned to do artwork on Y2K. What would be the core things you would have to do in the graphic design work? Hmm. I mean, I think the classic hallmarks of Y2K, typographically, there's a lot of custom lettering and, and very futuristic, very mechanical, very precise custom lettering and, and and custom type. I think Froyo recently uploaded an archive of a lot of fonts from Typodermic Studios from kind of the late 90s that the folks at Typodermic had decided to just make public domain because they thought they were outdated. I would probably look through there or I would do some custom lettering. And a lot of the typographic work that I see people doing today feels very rooted in Y2K sensibilities about type, right? Really pushing the limits of letter form readability, a lot of like symmetry, a lot of sleek and and speed, you know, something you see a lot is like glossy, elaborate 3D models, very brightly lit, very precisely lit. This was a period of rapid technological expansion in the sense that people were eager to show off what their new computers could do. And so you see a lot of stuff that is maybe to modern eyes who are familiar with the more kind of corporate minimalism is like feels kind of gaudy and and kind of crowded. But this was a time when people were showcasing the capabilities of new rendering technologies and, and new graphics technologies. I think the color palette that people largely associate with the period is like blue, purple, blurple, which is a <laughs> term that you hear a lot for that sort of specific hue. Know exactly of, what you're talking about. Yeah, sort of the Discord brand color. It was was very popular around then. A lot of kind of bloom and glow and optical effects on stuff because these were new processes that people were just really excited to show off. Zachary and I were talking about this as well with the MTV style of just like rapid cuts like cut to like black and white and like fisheye lenses just people so excited to use it yeah just like (laughs) excited to finally have all those tools in their hands which is very funny to me so you're sitting down you're gonna do a graphic design piece that incorporates some of these aesthetics and one of the first things you mentioned was a futuristic type and you know in a lot of the media i consumed as a kid we saw a lot of ufos we saw a lot of these tropes that we associate with the future. Mm -hmm. Why specifically is the Y2K aesthetic so seemingly inseparable from this vague concept of the future? Well, I think it may just come down to the date. At some level, whether they were actually conscious of this or not, if they were just sort of absorbing it from the surrounding culture, the concept of a new millennium had people very much 
looking forward maybe more so than they were in in previous eras right i think in a similar vein the sort of dominant 90s trend of thinking about the present as like the end of history and that's an attitude that sort of has never gone away like something that i kind of struggle to really look at through the lens of carry but that i personally am fascinated with is the cultural period between i would say about 2009 and 2015 and how terrible it was because of the neoliberal opinion that like we reached the end of history which was not a new thought you know through the 80s and 90s there was this idea of rapidly increasing globalization the rise of kind of the neoliberal order internationally people considered like cool, we did it. Like, the world is over. We're hanging out at the end. Nothing's going to happen anymore. Yeah, I I think in a (laughs) sense, like, the sort of far-reaching futurism and and references to futurism of past eras that's inherent to the Y2K aesthetic is kind of a reaction to that, is saying, no, there's going to be more history and we're going to make it happen with our transparent computers and uh, cool hats and stuff. Cut to yeah. 2022. Whoops. Here we are. <laughs> That's true. I, I would say presently, if you think about the pendulum, I would say presently we're probably on the pessimism side of that pendulum swing. But that, again, doesn't mean that that's where it's going to stay. You know, it hasn't stopped yet and and things are coming back around. I mean, in a very real sense, as we've observed, that pendulum is coming back around in terms of thinking about the present as the end of history, right? Like a lot of folks who, for clear political reasons over the last few years were very upset, are now like, I can go back to brunch. Like whatever, we history's <laughs> right. over. Finally, now history is over for real. <laughs> and we can all, you know, go back to posting cat memes and quoting Parks and Rec at each other. Like that's that's sure. coming back. You know, something that I actually pioneered the categorization of through Carrie is the aesthetic we call internet awesome sauce, which is like the <laughs> early aughts. Like I actually have an absolutely perfect example. If you just look up the art of a man named Jason Huser, H-E-U-S-E-R, you've probably seen this guy's artwork at some point in the past couple of decades. Oh, but I think it's... He did the painting of, like, Ronald Reagan on a dinosaur with two rocket launchers or, like, John F. Kennedy (laughs) riding a robot unicorn on the moon and just, like, (laughs) stuff that is so gross and embarrassing to think about now but was so cool in 2011 because this was a pastiche of history which was now over and it was cool to just kind of (laughs) postmodernly ball up whatever we all had our epic rap battles. Uh. Yeah, right? That definitely was was a big part of it, right? The obsession with old-timey mustaches and typewriters and bacon and stuff. Like, I think you could even assign the rise of hipsterism and the sort of Portlandia-style obsession with, you know, like the 1890s as evidence of this, like, post-millennial, like, end-of-history attitude, right? So, since we're talking about endings... Jack, when do you think Y2K ended and what were some of the reasons? So as I talked about earlier, one thing that we definitely see is the pessimism pendulum came back around, right? And that was due to a lot of factors. Generation X was sort of becoming disillusioned with the establishment following, I think, especially 9-11 and and subsequent uh, actions by the United States. Technology was 
had gone from kind of a universal novelty to a new facet of society that was kind of seeping into people's lives in ways that were less and less comfortable. People now are making neo Y2K art. Many of the most prolific ones are associated with Carrie or associated with art at Labor or associated with with Froyo, who I think is really responsible, along with her and, and the um, and the late Terrell Davis, are very responsible for bringing that trend back. But I think a lot of folks who are making that kind of stuff are people just doing it because the process is fun to make these like weird spiny shapes in cinema 4D and do like experimental typesetting. But to people now who are doing that, who are largely too young, I think, to remember the cultural attitudes that birth these aesthetics, like they don't feel the same connection to the overall cultural attitude. And now the cultural attitude behind these revivals is people think that this stuff looks cool because the average age of the people driving the zeitgeist is the right number right now that people remember this stuff being cool from like you know pepsi cds when they were a kid and they go i want to make stuff that looks like that because that was so cool in 2002 you know without really considering the wider and and more nuanced cultural attitudes that formed those visual motifs in the first place so i don't know that i could put a hard end date on y2k or really any aesthetic that we track right i i think we're constantly through doing research and through doing kind of scouring archives and and books and stuff we're constantly finding things that change our perception of when exactly these things started and ended because it's not really a clear-cut timeline if you wanted to point to an end point for Y2K generally I would say probably sometime between 2001 and 2005 but like people continued making stuff in that tradition who knew more or less about the original you know cultural context for a long time what we do when we talk about defining a consumer aesthetic is categorizing things because they share those same cultural attitudes and because they kind of represent the same moment in the history of how people have felt about the future about how the how to communicate about society right it's it's a lens through which we can view recent history in kind of an easier to digest way than doing a lot of academic reading or 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 similar things like that so i have one last quick question then do you have a favorite Carrie aesthetic? Yes, absolutely. I was waiting for this question. My favorite aesthetic out of all of them is what we call Factory Pomo. And I think the best example I can give you is the Bill Nye intro graphics. Yes. Factory Pomo was popular through kind of the mid 80s through up through the late 90s and is defined by like symmetry, you know, vector graphics, which had just been invented. There's a lot of references to constructivism and and Bauhaus aesthetics, really like wild and playful typesetting. You know, I have made plenty of things that are I would call Neo Factory Pomo. I'm really trying to get that going. My friend Will Burns, who goes by Smith, John, has made some really, really incredible work in that vein. I'd like to specifically shout out an album cover he did for Silence by Neonix, which is one of my favorite album covers I've ever seen. It's so sick. If I had to pick a favorite, like, that's going to be it. Where can people find Carrie? Where can people find you if you want to be found? And do you have anything else you'd like to promote? Yeah, well, well, uh, if people are interested in seeing my work, they can go to uh, jackopedia.design or they can find me on Twitter at jackopedia. 
if you are interested in learning about or joining Carrie as a researcher, which like you can just pop into the Discord just to look at it and then ask us some questions and hang out. Like it's it's cool. The website, which we're still kind of in the process of like dotting the T's and crossing the I's, etc., is um carry.institute. That's C-A-R-I dot institute. There you can look at gallery pages for the aesthetics. So if you're interested in, you know, learning about something that maybe we mentioned by name and you can't place visually, go and check that out. I want to specifically shout out Evan Collins and, and Froyo Tam. Evan contributed a huge amount of stuff scanned out of books that he's picked up kind of out of his own pocket that otherwise like may well have been lost forever carry.institute and the uh, link to the discord is right there at the top of the website if you want to pop in and um you know just say hi and uh if you if you find something out in the wild that you think fits an aesthetic well or if you are noticing a trend that you think could constitute a consumer aesthetic that's the place to pop in and ask about it i want to thank you guys for you know helping to kind of spread the word of carry the footprint that we are already covering, I think, has been way wider and the reception has been like way more enthusiastic than any of us expected when we went live with the website. We very much appreciate the work you're all doing. We we love it. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to be with us on the show. Yeah. Thank you for stopping by. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. Why doesn't mom ever get us any good food? How's this? Whoa! Extreme spaghetti yo-yo, Sue. Now we know they're worldly UFO shapes. Whoa, straight out of the future. Future, future. I wish we could go to the future. Your limo, sir. Gnarly. Next stop, Planet Spaghetti. Yay! Now you too can visit the future by entering the Extreme Spaghetti Yo-Yo Soup Planet Spaghetti Sweepstakes presented by Hummer. Ask a parent before going online. You must be 18 or older to enter. You're listening to Planet Tomorrow. Hello and welcome to my podcast within a podcast, Rye2K, where I... Rye, talk about the Y2K bug. This podcast with no podcast is definitely not a one-off bit and will definitely be a long-running and recurring thing, trust me. On this episode, we are chronicling the strange world of media made to capitalize on the millennium bug trend. So without further ado, let's get into the top three of the most ridiculous pieces of media I was able to find. Number three. As New Year's approaches. We're starting to see some problems. Six, five, four. One thing's on everyone's mind. Everybody out! Oh my god. What if they're right? Y2K the movie, NBC, November 21st. My pick for number three is this movie simply called Y2K the movie. It's a made-for-TV film that aired probably only the one time in November of 1999. The most notable thing about the movie is that the Edison Electric Institute, which is an association that represents most of America's electric companies, publicly campaigned against the movie from being aired for fears of causing panic. The concession NBC made was to put some scrolling text on the bottom of the screen to remind everyone 
this was just a work of fiction and none of the stuff is real. Which is really funny because the actual movie is an extremely benign 90s action thriller. It's about this handsome McWhite guy, freelance MIT graduate, who is apparently the only person in the world that understands computers enough to stop society from crumbling. So the whole movie is him flying around the country just narrowly fixing a bunch of random disasters like planes crashing, water plants breaking down, and in the climax of the movie, stopping an entire higher power plant from exploding in his hometown. For some reason, I have a real big soft spot for these late 90s cyber thrillers, even though they're objectively just bad. It's just really funny to me how they try to prey on people's fears of computers, but just fundamentally do not understand how technology works. I would tell you how it ends, but the person who uploaded their recording accidentally taped over the last five minutes with the movie Beastmaster, which it's fine. I kind of got the gist. Um, so here's my mini review of the movie Beastmaster. Beastmaster kind of sucks, but... I kind of hate fantasy, so maybe I'm just biased. Number two. Mass destruction, plagues and famines, and power failures, atomic war, and Satan's minions. Yay. Hip, hip, My pick for number two is just the entire cottage industry of Y2K novelty songs. The song you just heard was Y2K Hooray by Jim's Big Ego. I'll drop a link to the song in the show notes. You should really watch it because the music video is really something to behold. It's one of those really crude flash animations. I think it's a really good distillation of that just completely detached irony and cynicism of the early 2000s. I think what really fascinates me about media made for such a specific moment in time is just how short of a shelf life this stuff truly has. Like, when you think about it, you really have at most an 18-month period where anyone cares about your Y2K novelty song. There's this one parody song made by employees of the now-defunct tech company Sun Microsystems, where the whole joke is you can sing Y2K in the style of YMCA. We got this one from Daryl Cherney, same kind of vibe. Now the moment that the year 2000 strikes, computers gonna do anything they like. They can back up the sewer, shut the power down, send a nuclear war into your hometown, and you won't get your food. There's this acapella one where the whole bit is songs made after 1999 will be forced to be acapella because all the instruments, I guess, will explode or something. Singing Calypso, apocalyptic song. Calypso, acapella, apocalyptic song. But one song actually did rise above the rest for me that I'd like to present before we move on. Please listen to this selection from Y2K Made My Penis Explode by Scorched Mirth Policy. Enjoy. Y2K made my penis explode. It must have experienced a century overload. Number one. 
How could the omission of two simple digits affect the destiny of all humankind? Y2K, what does it mean? This comes from a 1999 VHS titled Y2K Family Survival Guide. And yes, that voice you heard was definitely Leonard Nimoy. I have no idea how they got him involved in this, but I really hope the paycheck was good. By this time, in the year 1999, the term Y2K has entered the public consciousness. World leaders in government, spiritual, and corporate circles have all found themselves in one of the greatest dilemmas facing humankind. The very best we can hope to do, therefore, is to prepare as individuals and as families so that we each feel secure and to work together in small and large communities as local and global neighbors. One of the things that the Y2K event is likely to, uh, to initiate is a rediscovery of community. Most people today have lost touch with community. We live lives that are very insulated from one another. It may be also that uh, we come to realize that technology doesn't supply all the answers that we hoped it had. Uh, one of the ways that we're going to be testing ourselves, of course, is to have a more concerned relationship with our fellow man. I think that really goes without saying. I think it's possible that we end up with a disconnection from our toys, a stronger connection to other human beings, uh, cautious and wiser reliance on technology uh, and a greater love for the simple things of life which is what life is really about. I think our modern age has been disconnected from the true values of life. I don't want to be too on the nose here but watching this in the context of the last few years is obviously going to change the way I read it. Don't get me wrong, this tape is absolutely silly and filled with some dubious advice from some sketchy experts, but I can't say the basic advice is really all that bad. The core thesis of this tape is that in the face of unnerving and difficult to understand global events, it's okay to feel helpless and confused. And the best way to get through that feeling of hopelessness is to step back and refocus on community. We won't find solutions in technology, and the only way to get through this will be in banding together and taking care of each other. And I really can't argue with that. The December 1999 edition of Popular Science, so right on the eve of Y2K, included this article they called A Best of What's New, a preview of the next millennium. It's absolute gold and it's a list of technologies that they're like, this is going to define the future. So we wanted to close out the episode looking at some of the technologies that we and other people thought were super futuristic around the turn of the century. So I want to start out by reading this preface from that issue of Popular Science. It says, Everything that can be invented has been invented said Charles H. Duell, Commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office in 1899. Hope he wasn't a betting man. It's tempting as we say goodbye to the century that saw the arrival of everything from the airplane to the computer to repeat those words. Or to wonder, even if to ourselves, if the world will ever again see so much innovation packed into a mere 100 years. Bet on it. <laughs> As we move swiftly toward the 21st century, today's advances are laying the groundwork for some of the most important inventions and discoveries in human history. A full century after Duell's pronouncement, researchers this year proved that stem cells, the basic building blocks of human life, can be induced to grow into different tissues. 
the discovery could eventually enable doctors to grow human organs for transplant. The launch of the Chandra X-ray Observatory will provide important clues about the nature of the universe, while a suburban Boston department store demonstrated electronic ink, the first step toward merging the look and feel of paper with the circuitry of computers. Meanwhile, a zero-emissions car moved one step closer to actual production, while a new outdoor vest promised to make the backcountry safer for hikers and skiers. No, the rate of innovation won't slow in the next century. In fact, the pace promises to go even faster. I mean, they weren't wrong with some of the stuff they said. Like, I, I think e-ink, that's a pretty cool technology. Yeah. Well, let's listen then to what other people had to say when we asked them to answer what technology did you think was super futuristic at the time around Y2K? This is Sabine. Um... So the piece of technology from the early 2000s that I remember being so life-changing for me was a portable DVD player. You know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, TV was so important to everyone who grew up around that time. It was basically a second parent for me because my parents were at work all the time. And I remember um, getting a portable DVD player and taking it on long road trips. And I remember just being so blown away that I was able to watch TV in the car. And I would, I literally remember having a backpack. I would put my portable DVD player in there with a couple of my favorite DVDs. And one of them was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original Gene Wilder one from the 70s. And every time I got in the car, I would just turn on my little DVD player, put in the DVD and be in my own little world. And it felt so futuristic that I was just able to watch TV anywhere. I was always so jealous of kids who had not what she's talking about, but like TVs built into their cars, you know, oh, like yeah. I would like stare from my car looking at the other car on, at the traffic light like, oh, they're watching SpongeBob. <laughs> but yes, portable DVD players were also like super futuristic to me. Did you have one growing up? Um, Not like this early, much later. Did you? Yeah, I think I got it on the later side. I always wondered one as a kid because it seemed like a really cool thing. And then we ended up getting one and it was kind of like cheap and it only worked like three times for like oh. whatever. All right, let's tee up the next one. Caller, go ahead. Hi, this is Rebecca. And in the early 2000s, I was pretty young and I got my first AOL screen name. And I thought it was the most futuristic, cool thing to type in some letters and and hear the tone and then be signed into this weird internet thing, um, that seemed pretty next level to me. My brother got mad at me because I couldn't remember that it was AIM and I thought it was AMI. And I would tell everybody <laughs> that he had this, he had the super futuristic thing. He was like, he has AMI. And he would get mad at me. There was this old toy texting buddy. So it was like a short range communicator, like the, the length of like a classroom, you could like send messages. But then it also had like a, computer thing like a program you would download on your computer so you could send messages like through the computer so it was like this own like weird Ooh. closed like chat program it was very weird i don't know if i remember that specific one but i think i was i remember seeing like a number of different types of directed at kids don't need a phone plan communicators <laughs> and yeah. being like this is a cell phone like i don't understand the difference and can i get this you know hey there this is tyler 
And the technology that I thought was incredibly futuristic in the early 2000s was my broadband internet <laughs> access. You know, as a kid growing up in the early 2000s, I enjoyed using the internet as much as any other kid. Um, but I had to use dial-up, you know, which meant that anytime I wanted to go online, usually to feed my Neopets or something, <laughs> I had to open AOL, wait what seems like an eternity to connect through the telephone line, you know, the whole beep, 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 <laughs> you know, something like that. <laughs> and finally, got access to the internet with the, welcome, you've got mail. <laughs> but the, the worst part of it all was the fact that anytime somebody called the landline, I would be booted off the internet, and I had to patiently wait until my parents were done talking, at which point I could finally repeat the whole process and reconnect. Not ideal. <laughs> But this all changed one day when my dad tried to explain to me that he had just installed broadband internet. Of course, I, I couldn't really comprehend all the technical specifics of that, but I immediately understood the significance of it the next time I went online. Instead of waiting forever to connect and having to hear that annoying internet sound, the dial-up sound, it connected almost immediately or instantly. And not only that, when someone called us, I could remain online and keep uh, use a Neopet. Oh, thank God. Um, and I thought, wow, what a marvel. And I, I, I just kept thinking to myself that that was the pinnacle of internet technology. How could it possibly get any better than that? And, you know, as the years went by, little did I know that it would continue to improve as I grew up and as wires started to magically disappear and the devices that we use to access the internet would just shrink in size. It, it's pretty crazy when you pause and reflect about it. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed my story. We did very much, Tyler. Thank you for <laughs> yes, calling. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how good your internet was growing up, but like I I often think about like how much like my early internet experiences were just like I'm gonna download this thing to watch tomorrow. <laughs> oh, downloading a video, that was like way too like that wasn't gonna happen. I didn't really start using the internet until um, at least that I remember until after dial-up. Mm -hmm. So that just sounds absolutely miserable. And I was, <laughs> I mean, it was slow still what I had, but I mean, I was fortunate enough to not have to do that. I feel like we had it for longer than we probably should, but, uh, you know, it, it built character. It made you really want to commit. <laughs> I think at the time I thought the toy called the Robo Raptor, Robo -Raptor. And, like, its other similar toys were super futuristic. Like my friend had one, and I thought it was just like the coolest thing ever. And like how it was advertised on TV as like having the infrared sensor, and it could just like walk, and it had like its autonomous mode or like an attack mode or. It attack like your sibling or your cat, <laughs> that type of toy. And because of like that type of technology used for just like such a little entertainment toy, I just thought that was so cool and so futuristic that a robot could be somewhat autonomous. Did you have one of these growing up? No, I've never heard of the Robo Raptor, but it sounds so cool. <laughs> Yeah, I never had a Robo Raptor. I had, it was just like a dude 
the way it worked is it would have a remote with a bunch of different command buttons on it. So like there'd be one that's like rotate 90 degrees, like step one forward, step one left. And so you could like program these like really complicated like animations and they would just like perform it. Was that one that you had just like black and white? Yeah. Okay. It's that like robot guy. I think I know what you're talking about. I really wanted one because I saw these commercials and kids are so stupid. I thought I thought <laughs> I was like, oh my god, they built a robot. He can do my homework. And like, <laughs> I, first of all, I have no idea, you know, what homework I had in like first grade or whatever. <laughs> right. But I remember like thinking, if only I could get my hands on one of these robots, I would never have to do any work again. <laughs> but I was like. You know, oh, but I'm sure it's like a million dollars. Like, I can't ask my parents for this. <laughs> and I also remember that I thought it could dig a tunnel to China. I remember I was like, I would be so cool <laughs> if I could bring this to the playground. And all the kids would think I was awesome if I could put it in the sand and it would dig a tunnel all the way to China. What gave you that impression? <laughs> that wasn't even in the commercial. <laughs> um I vaguely remember, like, probably the shape of its fingers or something. I was like, oh, yeah, those are for tunnel digging. I was like, <laughs> this, this is for, for boring and drilling. I think we have one more, right, Zucker? Yeah. So I think for me, the thing that had the biggest impact was the iPod. It wasn't just the fact that I could suddenly carry around a whole bunch of music, but it's the fact that it was digitized. Like, I didn't have to have a physical version of that music anymore because it all existed within one tiny object and that's become so common now like with movies on streaming services or tv shows in your phone even your photos don't usually exist in physical space anymore but at the time the concept of that blew my mind the fact that suddenly something that was tangible could exist in a non-physical space and still be at my fingertips was pretty cool and i guess that was right because it turned out to be the future so there you go it'll never last (laughs) what was the first thing you had on your first ipod what was the first music (sighs) that's a good question and don't try and be cool no no no. I'm, i'm genuinely thinking I guess it probably would have been... I had the Spongebob movie CD soundtrack. (laughs) So I probably ripped that and put that on whatever MP3 player I had at the time. I mean, Ocean Man is a stone-cold classic. Yes. What was yours? Um, Fittingly, the soundtrack to the Epcot Millennium Celebration. (laughs) Yes, of course. As well as... I thought I was very cool because it was super hard rock. I had... A classic of the early 2000s, the Good Charlotte album, The Young and the Hopeless, taken from my brother's library, and mm-hmm. Ozzy Osbourne, Crazy Train, taken from my brother's library. <laughs> it was very cool. Yes. So what would your answer be to this question? What technology did you think was super futuristic at the time? So I think my my favorite thing growing up was just the Game Boy Advance. Mm. I thought that was like the pinnacle of what graphics could be. There was consoles with better graphics, but then like just the fact that you could like hold it in your hand 
and you know take it wherever you want and it was just running on batteries that just seemed like how, how can you get better than this <laughs> and then you could also watch videos on it you'd watch shark tale which i didn't <laughs> which i didn't know until recently until you told me this and now i'm yes. like i only want to watch movies on a game boy advance yes I'm obsessed. There are people on the internet that are putting new movies on Game Boy cards, <laughs> and that I'm obsessed with that idea. Oh, like watching Dune the, on a Game Boy. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the obvious question is what does it what does it look like? But the other question is what does it sound like? What is what is Hans Zimmer's score for Dune <laughs> sound like coming out of a Game Boy Advance? Well, I prefer to watch all my movies on Palm Pilots which is probably mm. my answer. I don't think you can actually watch movies on them, but that's probably my answer for what I thought was super futuristic at the time. I mean, I think it kind of was a little older than that, but I don't know. As a kid, my parents had a Palm Pilot, and I was like, it's a touchscreen. Like, th- this is unbelievable. This is So, like, what were some of the features? Because I, I always heard the name, but I never really knew what... No clue. Thing was. Not a clue. Uh <laughs> I, it could dig a hole to China. It could do your homework. <laughs> I don't know. Not a clue. I think you took notes. I don't know. Well, we hope you enjoyed your visit to Planet Tomorrow. Planet Tomorrow was produced with generous funding from the Intergalactic Federation. I'm just kidding. We, have, we don't have any money. Our theme song was written by Spencer Roblin and performed by Forrest Van Dyke and Kyla Wooten. This episode features additional tracks titled Fat Sketch with a P and Too Cool from Kevin McLeod. Our logo was created by Cyan Larson. You can find Spencer, Forrest, Kyla, and Cyan's social media accounts in the show notes. And of course, you can follow us at Pod Tomorrow on Twitter. Special thanks to Janae Bonin for lending her voice to the Extreme Spaghetti Yo-Yo Sweepstakes commercial and for all of her support in general. Additional thanks to Jack Grimes and Carrie, whose website and social media pages are also linked in the description. And thank you to everyone who left us a voicemail. You too can also leave a voice message for us by calling 646-854-7584. Sometimes we'll have a prompt, but if you'd like to just leave a message of your own, that's always welcome. Or you can send us an email to planettomorrow at whalebus.net. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you really like the show, check out other great Whalebus shows at whalebus.net. Thanks for listening. Initiate Whalebus Protocol Sequence 721.